Second, what is your current response to Jesus? That's in verses 40 to 44. And then third, who is your authority? That's in verses 45 to 52. So let's first consider this question. What is in your heart? Starting in verse 37. I want you to picture the scene, if you can. You've been to Israel, break. If not, picture it. Try to picture it. It's the last day of this Feast of Booths. You're in a city, Jerusalem. It's packed. And the temple is full of people from all around the country. There's an excitement. There's a buzz. There's a feeling of celebration in the air. And for the past seven days, there's been a water-pouring ceremony. This is a ceremony where the priest would go to the pool of Silo and he would get some water from the pool of Silo. He would take a golden container and then he would process back to the temple with people following this way. And as he got to the altar, three trumpets would blow and then he would pour out that water from the base of the altar and they would repeat this ceremony every single day for seven now, on the last day, which is likely the greatest day, scholars would make which day this is, but it's likely the eighth day, when there's no water ceremony that day, Jesus stands up and he builds this to everyone who will listen at the top of his lungs. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, in the context of the feast, he's saying that this daily water ceremony that you all have been observing, this entire ritual, it's ultimately pointing to me. I'm the fulfillment of it all. Jesus here is not quoting from a specific scripture. You'll never find the scripture out of his heart will flow rivers of living water in the Old Testament. So what is Jesus doing? Well, I agree with John Calvin's assessment of what Jesus was saying. He believed Jesus was saying that all the, all the predictions of living water in Scripture, I'm the fulfillment of those. So Jesus is saying here that he is the one who will provide not just physical water in the wilderness as God did for his people, but he's going to provide living water in each one's heart. He's saying that he, like God the Father, in Jeremiah 2, is the fountain of living waters. He is saying that he is the one who will give the living waters flowing out of Jerusalem that were predicted in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. And on and on and on. This offer is to anyone who thirsts. Anyone, that is, who knows they need spiritual nourishment. John explains it for us better here in verse 39. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is saying the only way to satisfy your spiritual thirst is by believing in him. There's no other way. The reality is that every single one of us is spiritually thirsty. Without exception, everyone in this room. But not all of us know how thirsty we 
you really are, because we may have tried to quench that thirst in other ways. But you can't quench your spiritual thirst religiously, through meditation, or by fasting, or praying a certain number of times a day, or other religious practices that are out there. You can't satisfy your religious thirst by doing good deeds to others and being a good person. It can't be quenched by living a nice, comfortable life, fulfilling the American dream. That will not satisfy your spiritual thirst. Only Jesus can satisfy your spiritual thirst. Only believing in him will bring that up. And when you believe in him, Jesus says you will receive the promised Holy Spirit, these rivers of living water coming out of your heart. Spirit, you see, had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. He had not been risen and glorified. So the Spirit had not been given in the personal sense of all believers. Sure, he was at work to help people believe at that time, but they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit quite yet at this point in history. So here in our text, Jesus is saying to the crowd that the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, will take residence in them flow out of their hearts if they believe in Him. Well, it's important that we're clear about the language that's used here in the text. Because in the Bible, the heart refers not to the organ that is beating in our chest right now, but it's really the seat and the core of everything that we are, the seat of our thoughts and our will and our emotions and our actions. They all flow from the heart. It's the core of who we are. In the world's narrative, they see, it says, follow your heart. Above all, follow your heart. Just do whatever your heart says. You see this in the media, you see this in books and stories. Just follow your heart. But God's narrative is quite different. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he says that the heart is desperately wicked. It is deceitful above all things. And who can know it? So you see the difference here between what the world is saying and what God is saying. The world is telling us to follow something that God says is deceptively wicked. It's deceitful. So the question before us today is who are you going to believe? Who do you believe? see the problem that all humans need to fix is not just our bad habits. It's not just our behavior. We don't just need better education or understanding. We need to solve the problem of our sin against the holy God and the resulting wrath and judgment of follows. That's the problem we need to fix. And the, Jesus is saying the only way to fix that problem is by having a heart transplant. We need a new heart. We need a heart that we can only get by believing in Him, that is infused with the Spirit, so the Spirit comes and flows out of our hearts. When we do that, God gives us, when we believe in Jesus, He gives us that new heart. He gives us that heart where the Spirit is directing us at the core of who we are. So this morning, I do want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is that the only way to find spiritual profession is by believing in Him. Biblical belief is not mere intellectual assent. 
It's about faith, or a good word for it is trust. It's trust that will result ultimately in actions based on that trust. So if you're here today and you do not believe in Jesus, let today be the day that you do that. Because he is the only way that you will find spiritual satisfaction. Well, most of us in this room, I believe, do know Jesus. We are following Jesus. But I wonder, as you examine your life, as you take a mirror to your life, I wonder if what you see coming out of your heart is not rivers of living water, but maybe it's, which is kind of the evidence of a spiritual work, a spiritual work in your life, but maybe you see more like a slow trickle or a little stream. Maybe when you examine your heart, you're seeing things that Paul identifies in Galatians chapter 5, this wrestle between the flesh and the spirit. Maybe you're seeing more dirty water coming out of your heart, things like slander, gossip, sexual immorality, envy, greed, deceit. You're seeing dirty water come out of your heart. Well, whatever the case, whatever kind of water is coming out of your heart right now, let me suggest three practices that we can implement so that we can experience afresh those rivers of living water flowing out of our Three practices. The first one is remember, second is confess, and the third is dwell. So first, remember. If you truly believe in Jesus, remember that you have spirit, period. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that when we believed in Jesus, we received the promised Holy Spirit with the down payment of our inheritance, our future inheritance. In Romans chapter 8, he says that the, the Spirit testifies, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He also says in Romans chapter 8 that if we do not have the Spirit, we are not in Christ. And so, friends, if you believe in Jesus, you do have the Spirit. You have these rivers of living water. You don't need a second blessing of the Spirit. God has given you the Holy Spirit of full measure. So you need to remember, remember that you are righteous not because of what you have done or do, but because of what Jesus already did. Remember that your identity is secure. So first, remember. Second, confess. Perhaps there's an area of your life right now where you have cut off the living water by grieving the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like at our house, we've got this sewer line that runs underneath our house. And these tree roots that grow between the sewer line, they have a tendency to cut off the flow of water. I tell you what, it's not a good situation when that happens. But sin is a lot like that. Sin is a lot like that in our relational intimacy with the Lord. It cuts off this flow. We start to see, hey, What's going on? Where is the Spirit's presence in my life? Why am I not seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Why is it not coming out of me? Well, it could be that you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God in one or many areas of your life. So the Spirit can be grieved in all sorts of ways. And he can be grieved when you talk bad about someone behind your back. He can be grieved when you look at someone with lustful intent. He can be grieved when you are selfish. When you deceive others, when you're greedy, when you're envious, when you're questioning.
knowing the very words of God. He can be grieved with all these things and more. You get the point. But if you're not seeing this evidence of the Holy Spirit flowing out of your life, I challenge you to get along with the Lord and confess to Him today, this week, not for the forgiveness of your sin once and for all, but for the relational intimacy that the Lord wants to have with you. Just like any relationship, if you have sinned against the Lord, there is a distance between you and Him, relationally speaking. And as you do that, it will help restore your relationship. It will, it's one sure way to unplug the stoppage of the rivers of living water that should be flowing out of your heart. So confess. And then third, dwell. First, with the Lord. That means spending time with the Lord in His Word, reading it, seeking to apply it into your life. Friends, if this moment, if Sunday morning is the only time when you are hearing the Word of God in your life, you are famished. You're not getting enough nutrition, spiritually speaking. This is a good meal, but you need to be feeding yourself throughout the week. You need to be reading the Word, and then speaking back to them, His very words, through prayer. Conversing with them through prayer. And then dwell with others. Proverbs 27 says that as an iron sharpens iron, so also one man, by implication, one woman sharpens another. That means we need one another to encourage each other in this walk of faith. And I hope that happens a lot of different ways. That happens through mental women's Bible study, that happens through mission groups that are starting up here in the hall. But that can also happen by you just looking around this morning and saying, who is somebody I can go encourage and be encouraged by? So that we might fight sin together, encourage one another, that we might walk according to the Spirit. So three practices. If we see this, the Spirit, the, uh, the rivers of living water, the Spirit kind of drying up in our life. Three practices. Remember, confess, and dwell. Friends, you have the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you have rivers of living water, and we will see more and more evidence of his work in our lives as we grow in him. And those three practices are just really how do you grow as a Christian? Really, how do you grow as a Christian? So if you don't love Jesus, remember that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Unending rivers of living water are at your disposal. So we end this section of the text by asking again, what is in your heart? What is it? coming out of your heart. Well, as we continue on in the passage, and don't worry, the next two won't be quite as long. Be a little shorter. We'll see that Jesus' offer isn't immediately accepted to those who he is preaching. And so in light of this, I want you to ask yourself a second diagnostic question. What is your current response to Jesus? What is your current response to Jesus? Because you can't stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. You can't kind of like what's said right defense. You kind of be but kind of be swayed by the wind when you're when it comes to Jesus. You have a decision to make when it comes to Jesus. And in this next section of the text, we can observe that people realize that Jesus is a different kind of teacher. Listen to the various conclusions about who he is from the crowd, starting verse 40. It said, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So, upon hearing Jesus and his teaching, and especially his teaching about living water, 
some people made the conclusion that Jesus was the promised prophet from Deuteronomy 18, the one in the line of Moses who's speaking the very words of God, and they said, this, yeah, that's the prophet, right there. And you know what? They were right. They just didn't fully know who that prophet was and what he came to do. But Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the greatest prophet. He is the promised one from Deuteronomy 18, but they didn't fully know that yet. Verse 41, there's other responses. Others said, this is the Christ. So some of the people in the crowd rightly concluded that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, they didn't fully get it. They didn't get what the Messiah really was coming to do, that he must come to die for them. But they did rightly conclude that he was the Christ. But then some said, is this the Christ? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? Comes from the Bethlehem and the village where David was? Now for these people, this was simply just confusion and misinformation about Jesus. They rightly understood from Micah 5 and other places that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They got that from their teachers. What they didn't get right was that Jesus actually was from Bethlehem. They thought Jesus was from Galilee. So they said, well, when the Christ comes, he's going to be from Bethlehem, not Galilee. This was misinformation, and because of that, it kind of paralyzed them from belief. Again, from our vantage point, we know that there wasn't a contradiction. And as a result of all these responses, John explains in verse 43, he says, so there was a division among the people over him. Some things have never changed. Friends, today there's a huge division over who Jesus is. Before we get to that, we have a final response in verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. It's quite remarkable that Jesus made this declaration about that everyone needs to come to him when there was people who wanted to arrest him and were authorized to arrest him were right there in the crowd. Lest you think Jesus is a coward, lest you think Jesus isn't the most courageous man there ever was on earth, he is not afraid of people. He's not afraid of anything. He's God. But some of these people thought Jesus was a deceiver, and the high priests had sent officers to arrest Jesus. Well, if we look at the responses of the crowd, if this is the response when Jesus himself is in their presence, when Jesus himself is preaching, we should not be surprised with the various responses that we get to Jesus today. If Jesus was preaching and people doubted, and people wanted to kill him, and people wanted to arrest him, and some were confused about him, that's going to be the case today when Jesus is preached. So let that encourage you if you are sharing Christ with another. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to believe. People are still divided about Jesus today. Many people today think of Jesus merely as a good teacher who did a lot of good for the world. Many people think that Jesus never really claimed to be the Christ. I hear that all the time. Well, he never really claimed to be God. That's misinformation. He, he surely did claim to be God. <laughs> There's, there's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't allow that. He doesn't allow this kind of like, well, I'll just wait and see. Jesus is one good 
option among many. Jesus doesn't allow that. Not in the scriptures. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus demands a response. He presents himself as the only one who can satisfy our spiritual thirst. There's not many options. Well, we hear a lot of talk about God amongst the crowd. A lot of conclusions about his identity. But I wonder if you notice what is not there. What is not there, at least immediately, is, and many people believed in him. There's a lot of talk, a lot of, well, I think he's this, I think he's that. I want to kill him. A lot of that, but not a lot of, I want to believe in him. Now, to be fair, the encouraging thing about this crowd is that, if you look at chapter 8, later on even this day, that many people did believe. So, but what we conclude about this moment is that these people in the crowd were in process. They were in process with Jesus. And perhaps there are some people this morning, and you are in that place right now. You are in process with Jesus. You are wondering, wow, maybe for the first time you've heard Jesus face the claim that you got this morning. You're thinking, I need to think about that some more. Maybe you're angry at Jesus. There's a lot of responses to Jesus. And the encouraging thing is that many of these people did come to believe. But friends, it's not enough to stay in the fascinated by Jesus stage. You can't stay there very long. Jared said last week a lot of people enjoy being in the world of skeptic today. It's kind of like a nice little place you get to judge everyone. Kind of like I'm skeptical of that and that and that. You can't stay in that place when it comes to Jesus. Because the only way that we're going to find true satisfaction for our souls is by making a decision to live for Him. Yes, once for all, that our sins might be forgiven, but then again, every day, in choosing to live our lives for Him. Every day, Jesus says, we must take up our cross and follow Him. Every single day. And so that's where I ask the self diagnostic question, and I want you to ask what is your current response to Jesus? What is your current response to Jesus? Well, now we get to the last section of the passage, which involves the religious leaders. You know, these are the ones, remember? Verse 1 of chapter 7, who are seeking to kill Jesus. That's why Jesus had not come to the feast immediately, because he knew they were seeking to kill him. It's time and time they were the ones in verse 32 of chapter 7 that had sent officers to arrest Jesus. But out of this section, I want us to consider this third self-diagnostic question. Who is your authority? Who is your authority? One way to identify that, where your authority lies, is by following your fear. So another way to put it is, whose displeasure do you fear most? Whose displeasure do you fear most? Is it those around you? Is it your friends? Is it your colleagues? Is it people on social media? If so, then you will talk and act in ways that will not offend anybody. That are kind of like the status quo, politically correct. You're going to kind of like edge your bets because you fear their displeasure. Or do you fear the displeasure because if so, then you will act in appropriate ways as well. So, 
One way to determine this is to determine what is coming out of you in moments of pressure, like the ones that we see starting in verse 45. And here we see through the Jewish religious leaders, we can observe four traits about how they act that are common for how authorities who are opposed to God tend to operate. Four traits here in the text. First, they demand obedience. Look at verse 45, or listen to it. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. You see, the officers were right in standing up to the authorities. They were right that Jesus was different. But the authorities, they were not okay with that. They demand complete obedience. Well, the second trait of authorities that are opposed to God is that they claim to know the truth. They claim to have the corner of the market on the truth. So verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? You see, they had put themselves in such a prideful pedestal that they assumed whatever else someone else believed other than their belief was incorrect. They believed they had the corner on the truth. Well, a third trait of authorities who oppose God that we see here is that they look down on others who do not think like them. Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You can almost see the disdain or hear the disdain their voices. They, they did not have a love for the people, they had a disdain for the people. And the fourth trait that they display is that they dismiss and mock dissenting voices. So one of their own simply questions the process. Okay, time out, what's going on here? But he too was shut down. Listen to verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that is Jesus, and who was one of them, that is the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see what they're doing here? Instead of taking Nicodemus's concern legitimately and, and, and weighing it, they, they just mock him. Well, if you hold that view, you must be from Galilee too, that kind of like backwater area. You know, Jerusalem, this is where it's all at, and we're where it's all at. So, are you from Galilee too? They mock him. And then they insult his knowledge of the scriptures. Even though Jesus called him the teacher of Israel back in John chapter 3. So, Nicodemus is no slouch here. They say, they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, many scholars have pointed out that in their rage, the authorities didn't even think rationally. They were not even really searching the scriptures themselves. Because most scholars would conclude that there is one, if not three prophets from the Old Testament who came from Galilee. So Jonah came from Galilee. Likely, Elijah and Nahum also came from Galilee. So if Nicodemus would have been a smart guy, he would have said, yeah, I have to search the scriptures. He was but, but he didn't do that. And if they had read Isaiah chapter 9 carefully enough, they would have remembered that something special was going to happen in Galilee. It's what we recite frequently in Christmas time when Jesus has come.
come, they would have learned that in that chapter, a child was going to be born. One who was going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Galilee was not a backwater area because of Christ. He's from Bethlehem. He grew up in Bethlehem. Started his ministry in Galilee. Well, I do that little uh, exercise, those four traits, to show us the contrast between authorities who oppose God, some traits there, versus I want us to look at Jesus and how he responds in, in different ways to these authorities. So, for Jesus, instead of demanding obedience, he reasons with us. He loves us. He persuades us. He compels us to follow him, to believe in him. Instead of merely claiming to know the truth and have a core on the truth, he himself is the truth. He's the standard by which all truth is measured. Instead of looking down on others, he has compassion on those who are walking in darkness. He loves sinners. So much so that he would die for them. He loves his enemies. He calls the least of these. He doesn't call the high mighty into his kingdom. He calls the least of these. And instead of mocking those who disagree with him, he seeks their salvation. We've seen this frequently throughout John's Gospel. How he is pleading with the Pharisees to believe. Yes, he's harsh with them, but he wants them to believe. And some of them do believe. We'll learn that later. John. So with this in mind, let me ask ourselves diagnostic question again. Who is your authority? Who is your authority? Or the companion question, who, whose displeasure do you fear most? When you examine your heart, whose displeasure do you fear most? Is it the current perspective of our world? It seems to shift daily, if not weekly? Or is it your friend group or your colleagues at school or work? Or is Jesus your authority? With God's word as your guide. Not Jesus as you imagine, but Jesus as identified in God's word. Whose displeasure do you fear most? Friends, remember there will always be direct opposition to Jesus. But Jesus will never fail. He is worthy to be followed in with the living water of the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling deep within us, we don't need to be afraid of any competing voices out there to who Jesus says he is. Because we know that he's near us. He's within us. And he will give us the power, the strength to stand up when those times come, when we are under examination, like these officers, like Nicodemus was. Well, as we close, I want you to picture a waterfall in your mind. Maybe the Niagara Falls, maybe just like a rushing river. You can just think of that in your mind. Just think of water abundantly moving places. The water keeps coming. It, it seems to be unending. It's never running dry. And friends, that is the life that Jesus promises to those who believe in. Not that your life is going to be perfect, but that you are going to have an unending supply of the Spirit. It's never running dry. We talked about ways that maybe that unending river has dried up for you, ways to address that. But that will never move. 
You, you don't need to fear giving away love that you might not have more love to give others. You don't need to fear being too joyful so that maybe you won't have joy for next week. It's never ending. There's supernatural power within us. And this spirit is a down payment of our inheritance, our eternal inheritance. If we look to the end of the story, listen to what the Lord says. Revelation 21. He says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this will sound really familiar. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without pain. Friends, do you have the rivers of living water within you? Is it, are, are they coming out of you? The Holy Spirit within you? Do you regularly experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and his, the fruit of the Spirit in your life? That's what he has promised to give to you today, if you believe. So let's, friends, walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh or its inclination. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we humble that you have called us to yourself in Christ. We are amazed that you would give us this heart transformation, that you would give us your very spirit to dwell within our sinful bodies and souls. You are the one who is cleansing us. You are the one who is purifying us. Lord, help us to live in step with your spirit today. Help us to realize that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, those of us who know and love Jesus. Lord, if there's any today who don't yet have those streams of living water coming out of their hearts, I pray they would believe in you today. Lord, would you do a mighty work among us here at Hope Fellowship that your spirit would be so abundantly seen Others would look at us and say, God is there. We pray that for us today.